So what does it take for a society to flourish? For a culture to flourish? Does it take a great economy? You know, there are some people that argue, it's, it's a big middle class. If we can just get a big middle class, then culture and society will flourish. So maybe it's economic. Some people think that it's just about the right laws. If we can just get the right laws into place, that will cure all problems, and society will then begin to flourish. Is that what it is? Maybe it's the right leaders. If only we get the right leaders and, and we get the right politicians into the government, then our society will begin to flourish. But what does it take? If you look around, you'll get several different answers. And there's probably a combination of some of that. This probably, probably does have to do with some economics, some leadership, some policies. But what is all that rooted in? Where can you find the answers to the correct leaders, the correct policies, the correct economics? Maybe there's something even bigger at hand. What do you think it takes for society to flourish? King David gives us some instruction today as we turn towards Psalm 101 and continue our series, Summer in the Psalms. So we left off Psalm 99 last week, and in all honesty, I've already gone through, preached through Psalm 100 a couple of years ago, but my goal is to get through all of the Psalms. So at some point, we will have covered every single Psalm. So since that's the goal, I decided not to re-preach on Psalm 100, but we would skip 100 and go straight to 101. So hopefully, someday in the, in the future, since we only do the Psalms during the summer, someday during the future, years from now, we will have covered every single Psalm. Now, I don't know about you, but I like to write my notes in my Bible. Uh, so those are my notes. Some people ask me how I preach without notes, uh, and I, my answer is my notes are actually in my Bible. So what I like about this is then when I have someone ask me a question, I can go look at my notes. But I think it's really helpful uh, for you as well. Uh, in fact, one lady here, uh, she likes to take notes on her bulletin, car, uh, bulletin, and then later on in the week, she transfers those notes into her Bible. And for her, that helps really solidify uh, her thoughts and everything like that on the sermon and uh, some of the notes and some of the definitions. So I just highly recommend, if you've got a Bible that you don't mind writing in, I think it's really helpful. And like I said, my goal is one day that every single psalm will just be full of notes as we, uh, as a church, become more and more biblically literate. All right, so Psalm 101, a psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within, uh, within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, will I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit 
shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. All right. So if you'll notice, Psalm 101, there's there's kind of this flow to it, and he begins first with examining his own heart. So how can we as a society, how can we as a culture thrive? And I think the first step is each individual examining their own heart. And then as we walk through this psalm, we'll see that he goes from his heart to his house. Now, King David was also a king. And so he goes from his heart to his house to his kingdom. So we'll kind of talk about this and, and how this applies to our lives. So it starts off as a psalm of David. Now, we don't actually know when in his life he wrote this psalm. There's a little bit of a debate because David, this is a psalm about rejecting evil. How can a society flourish? Well, a big part of it is rejecting evil. So it's a psalm about rejecting evil, but the question comes, well, David had some huge moral failures. So when was this psalm written? Was it written before the moral failures and he just didn't live up to his promise? Or was it written after his moral failures and he's learned the lesson? And I have to be honest with you, this is one of those questions that I don't know the answer to. I'm not sure when he wrote it. And I don't know if if it really matters that much because the point of the psalm is that we need to take sin seriously. Whether David wrote this and he made this promise and then he broke the promise and he experienced the tragedy that comes with letting sin creep in or whether he's reflecting back on how he let sin creep in and now he has renewed how he will not let sin creep in. The point is that we can take away is that he will take sin seriously and so do we. Sin will always affect more people than you imagined And it will last longer and have greater impacts on your life than you could think of. Oftentimes, we think our sin is a personal thing. That my sin only affects me. And there is no sin that only affects you. Every sin affects everyone else. Every sin has a ripple effect that impacts generations. Jen's grandpa lived a double life. So he lived here in Arizona with a mistress, and he lived in Cheyenne half the year with his wife. There were some huge sin issues going on there. He didn't think it impacted really anyone. He thought he could just live his life. Now, we can clearly see how that impacted his wife. the pain that it brought her. And if you look at his life, you could see how that also impacted his sons and how that impacted his grandchildren and even to this day how it has impacted his great-grandchildren. That's just one of many examples that we can give of how our sin impacts way more people than we can ever consider. Generations are impacted by sin. And we see that within David's life. He was supposed to go out to war. 
He was supposed to be doing things that God has called him to, but he decides to stay home. And then he decides to give in to lust. If you're not familiar, familiar with David's absolute horrid moral failure, it's when he stands on top of his temple and he sees a girl bathing, Bathsheba, and he takes advantage of this girl. He lusts after her with his own heart, and he thinks that this is only going to impact him. It's okay. I can, I can get away with this. And then he gives into a little bit more sin and a little bit more sin. And pretty soon he's in a pickle because he's gotten her pregnant. Now what does he do? He needs to cover up his sin. So he invites her husband, Uriah, back home and tries to get him to hurry up and sleep with her so he can cover up his tracks. And Uriah is a man of God and doesn't want to, to uh, commit. It wasn't a sin for him to sleep with his wife, but it was not okay for him because he was supposed to be at war. So he doesn't want to do it. Uh-oh, David's in more problems. So instead he has Uriah killed. It doesn't just affect David, and it doesn't just affect Bathsheba and Uriah. Pretty soon, David's entire household is fighting, and there's infighting within his household. And then that trickles down to his entire kingdom, and Israel eventually splitting. You can all come back and be traced to David's little sins or at least what he thought was little. We need to take sin seriously. It always impacts us far more than we could ever imagine, for far longer than we can ever imagine, with more generations than we can even think of. Sin has impacts. Now, the good news for us is we also live in God's grace. So before, if you've committed sin, and you're like, man, I've really done a great deal of damage, which might be true. You might have absolutely uh, split your family apart. The good news is we live in God's grace. And God can take your sin, and he can take it and make it something good. Not your sin itself, but the results. So because of Jen's grandfather's sin, and that ripple effect, that actually drove Jen towards God. So God used the sin for the good of those who love him. And there's also plenty of examples, example after example, of God's grace taking something that we've done that's horrible and rebellious against God, and when we give that up to him and we submit and surrender it to God, God can transform hearts and turn that into good. And so now Jen knows how to minister to broken families because she grew up in one. I've known so many people that have lived in devastating sin and have seen the ripple effects. And then they have given their hearts to Christ. They have submitted their lives to Christ. And Christ then uses their testimony to glorify himself and for the good of others. So many people that were addicted to drugs that come to Christ that now work with others who share their story. 
So sin we need to take seriously. If you're stuck in a devastating sin, know that God can take you out of it and that God can redeem your life. All right, so we need to take sin seriously. It's a psalm of David. I will sing of steadfast love and justice. Now what's interesting here is he begins with uh, this commitment to sing, right? And we we even looked a couple weeks ago about how uh, we need to sing, how singing transforms our heart, how singing is good for us, and it's a testimony about how great God is. But what's interesting here is he starts off with this commitment to sing, but then throughout the rest of the psalm, it's going to be a commitment to live it out. So there's a commitment to sing and a commitment to live it out. It's important for us to once again emphasize or look at this commitment to sing because being committed to sing praises to God helps us live out what God has called us to. I want to say that again because it's so important. Being committed to sing helps us live out the truths. So when we sing, it reminds us of the truths of God in our life, especially when we sing scripture. It reminds us of who God is and who we are and how we can live out the assignment that God has given us. So it's important for us to sing. It's important. I don't think he messed up when he, say, when he made a commitment to sing and the rest of the Psalms is about how we're going to live it out. He makes a commitment to sing. That's going to help him live it out. And what's also we need to take a point of is that he's committed to sing of God's steadfast love and justice. So take that to, to heart, that he's not just singing some wishy-washy lyrics. He's not just singing, you know, the latest pop song. He's singing about God's love and justice. This term, steadfast love, means committed love, unfailing love. It's not just an affection. It's not just an emotion. Now, when we talk about love, we, we even talked about this last week. We get kind of confused about this term love because we say we love all kinds of things. We love our children. We love our friends. We love mountain biking. We love that brand new car. We love tacos and we love our wives. Hopefully not all of those loves are the same, right? So what do you mean by love? I think God does have an emotional response to us. He loves us with a great affection, but his love isn't just that. He has called us to a greater love. When I talk about my love for my kids, I mean that I have a great affection for my kids. My kids bring me a lot of joy, but my love goes beyond just having an affection for them. My love is also being deeply committed to their good, even if it means bringing on hardship for myself. God has a deeply committed love for you He's committed to do what's best for you. And there is no greater picture of this than the cross. God has a steadfast, unfailing, committed love for you, and yet every single one of us has rebelled against him, has shaken our fist at him at some point in our lives and said, forget you, God, I want to do things my way. And as a result, every single one of us deserves death. But that's not where God's love ended. God didn't say, fine, do it yourself. How many of us as parents have done that with our kids? I mean, I'm deeply committed in affection and love for my kids, but there are times when I fail. I'm not as unfailing as God is. I fail, and there's been times my kids have frustrated me, and I've thrown up my hands, and they're like, fine, pour the glass of milk yourself. You're going to spill it everywhere. 
And sure enough, there it goes. But God's love isn't like that. In our rebellion, he still stayed committed to us, so much so that although we rebelled and we were separated from him and we have a price to pay, which is eternal death, he came and he paid the price for us. He didn't have to. He didn't have to join the ranks of humanity and suffer. But because, of, because he loves you with such a great love, he came to this earth, he suffered pain, and he died on the cross for you so that you could be reconciled back to him. And there's no amount of work you have to do for it. You can't earn it. All you have to do is trust his work on the cross. Put your faith and trust in him, and you will be reconciled back to him and can have eternal life. There's no greater picture of God's unfailing, committed, steadfast love than that. But that's not the only reason why, why David sings. If that alone was all we had, that would be reason to sing. And that helps us, remind us, that helps give us purpose to our life, helps us live it out when we sing of God's unfailing, steadfast, committed love. But that's not all. He's also singing of his justice. This is a word we've talked about uh, the last two weeks in a row. Justice here is mishpat. And it means judgment according to a moral standard. If we as a culture are going to thrive, one, we need God's steadfast, committed, unfailing love, but two, we also need God's justice, his moral standard. Humans cannot be the objective moral truth-tellers because we're not objective enough. My morality, if it's simply up to me, my morality constantly changes based on how I feel. My morality constantly changes based on what I desire. And we can see throughout human history, morality is constantly changing. Even in our current state, oftentimes people talk about this new morality and how it's on the, the right side of history and how it is this new way of thinking and it's progressive. And yet if you go back 2,000 years to Rome and pagan culture, it's the exact same morality. It's not new. We've just learned how to justify it in different ways. So morality is constantly changing according to man's standard. God's standard never changes because he is the author of life. He is the creator of all. He has implemented moral principles. So we need to look for God to God for true justice. And he has true justice. So we need to sing of God's steadfast, unfailing love and of his justice, his ultimate moral standard. And although we fell short of that moral standard, we need to strive to submit to his moral standard. To you, O Lord, I will make music. So this is just repeating the first line, that because of God's great, steadfast, unfailing love and because of his perfect justice, we will also make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless, this term ponder means to consider and to think on, to meditate on. How often do you ponder the way that is blameless? Throughout Proverbs, we see that there are two paths we can be on. You can be on the righteous path that leads to life, 
or you can be on the wicked path that leads to death. There is no other path. There's no third option. You are either on the righteous path or you are on the wicked path. We need to ponder which path we are on. Our hearts are, are wicked and deceptive and can easily fool us into thinking that we are on the righteous path when truly we are on the wicked path. Now, examples of how easy this can be sometimes is murder, right? We look at murder and we think, murder is wrong. Boom, I'm on the righteous path because I don't murder. But it is more nuanced than that, and there are a lot of there are a lot of situations and applications in our life where it's not always so cut and dry. It's not always so easy. And we need to take a moment and ponder. So another example is forgiveness and reconciliation. I talked a little bit about it last week. We'll talk about it again this week. We are commanded to forgive. That's pretty cut and dry. Whether someone asks for Forgiveness or not, we're commanded to forgive. I don't even need to be in contact with someone in order to forgive them. Forgiveness simply means to no longer hold that sin against them. So when someone sins against you, you're commanded to forgive them to no longer hold it against them, right? You're for commanded to forgive them. But that's not the same thing as reconciliation. Reconciliation means to bring that relationship back. Now, we're commanded to forgive but we can't have reconciliation without repentance. So if the person who has sinned against you does not repent, you're not commanded to reconcile with them. You're not commanded to bring that right relationship back into a right standing. It becomes a little bit more complicated. It also means when we sin against others, we shouldn't just expect them to forgive us willy-nilly. We need to be quick to repent as well. When we're called out for our sin, are you quick to repent? Not just say, I'm sorry, but to recognize where you wronged someone. To confess that you wronged them. You can't have reconciliation until you can recognize where you wronged someone and confess it to them. So being on the righteous path, sometimes it just takes pondering, thinking, meditating, looking at our life and saying, does it line up with Scripture? Am I really truly submitting my life to Scripture, or am I twisting Scripture to fit my lifestyle? We need to be pondering on that. Oh, when will you come to me? This is simply just calling for God's justice. So he's, he's saying, I'm going to ponder the ways that are blameless. I want to make sure I'm on the right path, and I'm calling out for your justice. That's what's going on with that. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. So integrity means living consistently to a moral standard. So there are some people that sometimes... I'll back up. The only people that can actually be hypocrites are the people that have a moral standard. So to live with integrity means to live consistently with a moral standard. If you have no moral standards, you can't live with integrity. A lot of people will say integrity is being who you are in all walks of life. And that is true if you automatically assume there's a moral standard. 
So if there is no moral standard, but you're walking in all ways of life, the same with no moral standard, you still don't have integrity. So this isn't like permission for us. Sometimes people use like, I want to live authentically. Well, I do too. But sometimes we use that as an excuse to not live to some moral standard. I want to live authentically, so I'm going to come to church and I'm going to cuss up a storm. Well, I'm glad you're at church. I love you. But there still needs to be a moral standard. It doesn't mean that we bring all moral standards down to where we're at our lowest. It means we bring all moral standards up. So the question here is, are you the same person at church as you are at work, as you are at home? Or are you living a double life? Do you pretend to be someone at church that you're not at home, that you're not at work? Are you one person around your wife and someone totally different around your buddies? That's not living with integrity. So integrity, first and foremost, assumes that there is a moral standard, and then it's a call out to live accordingly in all walks of life to that moral standard. Now, it doesn't mean that we won't fail. Sometimes we get confused about failing. But it does mean that when we are called out in our sin, we are quick to repent, quick to ask for forgiveness, and quick to correction. Because every single one of us will fail at home, with our kids, or at work when the pressure's on. But when you're called out, are you willing to repent? So I will walk with integrity of heart in my house. So he goes from pondering his own heart to now it's going to apply in his house. And this is where the rubber meets the road. Are you the same person everywhere? I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. So I will not set before my eyes. The first part of this is what do you set your attention on? What do you think about? What do you meditate on? And the second part, anything that is worthless, is emphasizing that what we need to be thinking on, what we need to be meditating on, needs to be things of value, not the worthless things. It is really easy for us to let our minds wander into worthless territory. I often tell my kids, if you don't control your thought life, your thought life will begin to control you. And we're kind of at a place in our culture where we don't actively think about controlling our thought life. We oftentimes think that what I think is what I am. And so I might as well define myself by my thought life and just let my thought life take over. Instead of thinking, I have control over my thoughts. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul tells us to take every thought captive. Reflecting on how you think. What is your thought life like? What do you meditate on? What kind of thoughts do you let enter your brain? Now, we all have moments of weakness where we let thoughts enter our brain that aren't okay. So what do you do with that? In Romans 12, Paul tells us, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the daily renewing of your mind. So I think there's two huge practical ways that we can control our thought life. One is actually going back to that first line, to sing. 
I can't tell you how many times, like if I, when I'm out riding my bike or on a walk or even just laying in bed, when there are thoughts that start to creep in my head that are not okay, that are worthless. And they can range from anything. I think a lot of times we, we ponder some worthless conversations on Facebook. And we start making arguments in our head against someone that wouldn't even listen to it even if we had posted it. How many times are you, just, you read something on Facebook and you're just mad? And you start formulating that argument that you're not even going to post. Sometimes that's a worthless thought. Sometimes the worthless thought is thinking that you don't have any value. Thinking that you yourself are worthless. Men, we oftentimes struggle with lust. And the worthless thought that we let enter our brain is lust. Maybe your worthless thought is that you wish your spouse was more. Or maybe your worthless thought is you wish your spouse was less. Fill in the blank. Those are worthless thoughts. Comparing ourselves with others. Comparing our spouses with others. Those are worthless thoughts. So how do we change these worthless thoughts? One, we can sing. When I, when I have a worthless thought enter my mind, the way I control that thought, the way I take that thought captive, oftentimes is through singing songs. There are some 80s worship songs that I can remember I, have no, I haven't sung them in a decade, but I'm like, I don't want to think that thought anymore. Lord, give me something. And boom, there's this 80s worship song that will pop in my mind. And I'm like, wow, I haven't heard that in a while, but I'll go with it. Because it's way better than that worthless thought. The other one is through memorizing scripture. So there are times when I have a worthless thought. And I know I don't want it. I know I need to take that thought captive. And so I start to meditate on scripture that I've either memorized or scripture that I'm trying to memorize. Both of those are ways that you can replace something that is, a thought that is worthless with a thought that has worth, a thought that has value. And they're very practical. So he's saying, I will not set my eyes before anything that is worthless. I will not meditate. I will not let worthless thoughts enter my mind. And that's one of the ways that we live with integrity. That's one of the ways that we can become the same person in all aspects of life according to a moral standard is we take the worthless thought captive. Oftentimes, when we start to dabble in sin, it starts in our heart and in our mind. And we give in to a wicked desire and a wicked thought. And it grows from there. In James, it says it starts off small, and then eventually it will devour you. Think about that as sin, a picture of this little baby sin that grows into something that eats you. Little Matthew is an adorable little baby. That's not what sin looks like. There is no adorable pet sin. Eventually, they will grow to eat you. So how do we control it? We control it by controlling our thought life. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Uh, the term who fall away here means to deviate from the path. To deviate from the path. So we've talked a little bit about already that there are two paths. 
there's the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. So those who fall away are those who were on the path of the righteous but have deviated over to the path of the wicked. The one with a perverse heart, the perverse means crooked. So this is someone who has a crooked heart, who has a wicked heart, who has let, who has jumped off the path, who has started walking on the path of the wicked, and has let the path of the wicked begin to shape and form their heart to where now all they think about is perverse and crooked things. That's the one who falls away. That's the perverse heart. Both are contrasted with the person with integrity or the heart of integrity. These people have no integrity. They don't want anything to do with the righteous path. They are now walking on that perverse, wicked path. Now, in our culture, it's often easy to think about the sexually deviant in this situation. We see the word deviant, and we think, oh, deviant. And we can see examples of it all over the place. We can see the examples in our culture, how easy it is to jump off the path of the righteous to the path of the wicked, and how quickly that is a slippery slope that allows so many other things in. But throughout the Old Testament, when we looked at justice, righteousness, and equity, the person who cares about those things, who cares about living according to God's law, who cares about living according to God's word, Oftentimes, they were considered sadiq. Sadiq is the word for righteous, and it also implies someone who is willing to build up the community at their own cost. Someone who is willing to build up the community at their own cost. Versus the unrighteous, who is willing to build up themselves at the cost of the community. So you see that contrast there. And when I think about those who deviate from the path and those who have crooked hearts, it applies to so much more than the morality we see so easily in front of us. It applies so much more to, are you willing to build the community at your own cost? Or are you trying to build your own kingdom at the cost of the community? Now, it's important that these, these two pieces, these two lines, they don't just apply to like uh, specific incidents. We can all look at specific incidents in our lives where we cost the community something, where we messed up. But this really applies to a heart that has developed the habit of living in an unrighteous way. A heart that has developed the habit of constantly building themselves up at the cost of the community, at the expense of the community. Now, when we think about that, we can apply it in so many different ways in our lives. Do you come here to build your own little kingdom? And at whose cost? Or do you come here to build others up? Are you a part of a congregation to build others up or to, to tout your own talents, your own skills? So how do you use your time, your treasures, and your talents? Is it to build your kingdom 
or is it to build up the kingdom of God? Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. So whoever slanders his neighbor, this is really about gossip and slander, and both gossip and slander destroy community. Both gossip and slander divide the community and destroy the community. We shouldn't tolerate it. So a question that you need to ask when information is being shared, a couple questions, I think, practical questions. Number one is, is this my information to share? How would this person feel if they knew I was sharing this information? How would this person know or feel if I was listening to this information? Oftentimes, knowledge or information is power, and people who slander and gossip use that information as a power play, once again, to build their own kingdom instead of building up the kingdom of God. So, is it my information to share? How would I feel if this person knew I was sharing this information? A couple important questions to ask before you share information. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. The one who has a haughty look and an arrogant is someone who has unwarranted importance. So someone who thinks they are more important than they really should. Now, this isn't false humility. We see false humility all over the place. False humility is when you actually have a talent and a gift, and you try to play like you don't. So let's say Michael Jordan came into this room. Or let's say, we've got basketball hoops out there. Let's say we had a pickup game of basketball. Some of our teenage boys like basketball. We decided we are going to play together, and uh, we got out there, and Michael Jordan rolled up. And Michael Jordan, as we're picking teams, says, guys, don't pick me. I'm really not that good. In fact, Pastor Aaron's probably better than me. <laughs> One, he's never seen me play. And I can guarantee you, almost everyone here that is above the age of 15 is better than me. Uh, <laughs> I'm really bad at basketball. But two, that's false humility. He knows. He's rolling up to a pickup game. He knows he's the best one in town. That's not an accurate picture. That's false. It's not okay. So the balance with humility and pride is recognizing when God has given you a gift, it's okay to recognize that God has given you a gift. Every single person in this room has been gifted in a special and unique way. God has crafted you with amazing talents and gifts. It's okay to recognize how God has gifted you. But we need to recognize that it is a gifting from God. So false humility can even be an insult to God. Pride is an insult to God because pride is saying, I'm the one who has done all this. That's not okay either. So real humility really comes in when we picture, when we understand fully who God is and who we are. And it's totally okay to say, God gifted me this way, and so I want to use this gifting in a way that glorifies God. That's the balance. That's the difference. It's not saying, oh, I'm so good, and it's not saying, oh, I'm so bad. It's saying, God is so good, and he made me a certain way. So now let me use that talent to glorify him. But this person with a haughty look and an arrogant heart has this unwarranted 
of importance. They think really that they are better than. And they walk into a room thinking that they are better than. So they walk into a room, they think they're better than you, so they look at you to see at, at how they can use you. They see other people as tools, a means for an ends, a means to an ends. How can I walk in here? I'm better than you. How can I use you? That's that haughty look. That haughty look is also so arrogant that they don't want to pay attention to anything that you say. They are unteachable. They won't learn. They won't listen. So there's the haughty look and arrogant heart he will not destroy or he will not endure. So we see that both the person that slanders and the person who is arrogant is someone that we should not be pursuing. That we need to actually discontinue that relationship. Now sometimes that's difficult. Sometimes you're in a working relationship and well, quite frankly, you can't discontinue that relationship. But you can distance yourself from the person who gossips and slanders and the person who is arrogant. So we need to discontinue that relationship, which br brings about a, a question of, but we're supposed to reach out. We're ambassadors of Christ. We're supposed to bring the gospel. So how do we do this with someone who is a gossip, who is a slander, and who has an arrogant heart? And I think it takes a lot of discernment. And I think the major question is, will they listen? Most of the time, an arrogant person won't listen. So we discontinue the relationship, and we let them live in their arrogance. But we keep our lives as inviting as possible. That doesn't mean that we pursue them, but we keep a, the, our lives to be inviting. We keep our place clean. We live with integrity. We make it so that they know that when they're ready, they can come. If you don't wait, you will be banging your head against a brick wall and casting your pearls before swine. So I have a cousin who is, uh, he's arrogant. And he makes a lot of posts on social media. His latest post was about how Christians can go do some stuff to themselves and uh, how all we ever care about is punishing women for being promiscuous, that we don't care about lives. And my first reaction stirs some anger. I've had this conversation with him before. In fact, when he accused me of this before, Jen and I talked about how many people we know, how many Christians we know volunteer with foster care, how many Christians we know adopt. I mean, the statistics all go one way. But it doesn't matter if we have all the facts because he's arrogant and he won't listen. So yesterday when he made that post, I just went ahead and hit him and I won't look at his post anymore. I'll be inviting. And when he's ready to have a real conversation, that's when I'll have a real conversation. So I think it takes discernment. It takes discernment of whether or not this person is willing to listen. And if they're not willing to listen, I think we go back to discontinue that relationship. But if they're willing to listen, to have a real conversation, then we can share the gospel with them. 
I will look, in, look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. So the faithful, these are the ones that are staying true to God's word. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. To walk uh, blameless, blameless here is tamim, and it means to walk with integrity in such a way that if you are ever, con- ever accused, others come to your defense. You don't even need to come to your defense because others will do it for you. I know several people in this church, I, I, and I thought of so many names, but I told Jen, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I know of so many people in this church, and I know them so well, that they walk in this blameless way that if anyone ever came up and said, hey, so-and-so is this, half the church would be there in their defense saying, no, 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 you've got the wrong person. We know this person well enough. We know them in their house. We know them at, uh, at their work. We know them here in church. And we know them so well, you've got the wrong person. Conversely, someone who is not blameless lives in such a way that when they are accused, you go, huh, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I didn't think they were that way, but now that you mention that, like, oh, man, you've just lined up everything. There was always something a little off. Now it all makes sense. So there's a big difference in that. When there is an accusation, do people come to the defense? Or are people like, wow, now I finally understand. So these are the people, the ones that are faithful and the ones that are blameless. These are the relationships to pursue. These are the ones that you want around you, who you want to influence you. Now, being faithful to Scripture doesn't mean that we always have to agree on everything in Scripture. I think that's important to note. There are times when we will disagree on certain things. So I always like to break it down to primary, secondary, and tertiary issues. Primary issues are non-negotiables. The virgin birth, the depravity of man, the sufficiency of scripture and and er inerrancy of scripture, the atoning death and bodily resurrection. Those are things that, that I will not bend on at all. We better be in agreement there. And if, but if you can agree to those five things, Man, we've got a good primary start. The secondary issues, I think, oftentimes are are issues that I might disagree with on another Christian, and I can still love them. I can still call them a Christian brother and sister, but I may not attend the same congregation as them. One of these secondary issues, I think, are uh, the governance of the church, how the church should be governed. So I am a congregationalist. This church is congregational, elder-led congregational, if you want to be more exact. And, and I think that's important. It can really uh, change the way that the, ch- that the church acts. It can change the structure of the church. But I have friends that are more into a Presbyterian, which is like a hierarchy structure. Now, I can love them. I can say, you are brother and sister in Christ. But I probably won't attend the same church as them. But that's okay. And then there's uh, tertiary issues. Tertiary issues, those third issues, Jen loves the word tertiary, so I just want to say it a couple more times. Those are third issues. And I might bring up something like, uh, in Genesis 6, when it says the sons of God came into the daughters of women, how do you interpret that? Now, 
The reason why I bring that one up is because there are a couple different ways to interpret it. If you're curious about that, maybe you should write it in the question card and put it in the offering box. But, but there's a couple different ways to interpret that. How you interpret that doesn't really change a whole lot of theology. So you and I can disagree on that, and we can attend the same church, and we can be in good community together. So that's a tertiary issue. One of the problems I think we run into is when we make tertiary issues primary or secondary issues. So we can disagree on how we interpret Genesis 6, but if you make that interpretation a primary issue, we're going to end up having a problem. Let's keep that a third issue, a tertiary issue, if you will. But if you keep those five things, the inerrancy and sufficiency of scripture, the virgin birth, the depravity of man, the bodily resurrection, and the atoning death, man, you know, I think we can be in really good fellowship together. We can come together and we can encourage each other and spur one another on. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall come before me. This is just the opposite of uh, integrity, deceit and lies. That's the opposite of integrity. And he's just reaffirming that I'm not going to let these people influence me. I am going to let these people influence me. That's what he's doing with verse 7. Verse 8, morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all evildoers from the city of the Lord. This is not uh, affirming a vigilanteism. Vigilanteism. He's not like endorsing vigilantes, right? He's not going around saying, okay, guys, it's time to get your guns. Let's go destroy all the wicked. We have to understand the difference in uh, governance here. It was literally David's job as king to punish the wicked. It was literally David's job as king to cut off the evildoers. It was literally David's job. And in Israel, it was a theocracy. So really, King David was just a representative of King Yahweh. They recognized Yahweh as their king. David was the mouthpiece. So he was literally tasked to go out and do this. We are not. We are not a theocracy. Nor do I think should we strive to be a theocracy. But it does show us that justice is important. We should care deeply about justice. And our judicial system needs to strive for justice. More practically, how does a church apply this? And I think it comes down to church discipline. Because we are ambassadors for Christ, because people look at this church and they, they get a feel for who God is, we need to take sin seriously. And so as a church, when we see someone who is in rebellious sin against God, meaning that they're not, when they're called out on that sin, they're not willing to repent, but continue to shake their fist at God and at the church, then we need, as a church, to say, you are no longer able to fellowship with us. Because you're going out into the world, telling the world that this is who God is. And that's not who God is. And we need to make it clear that we disagree with you. 
So I want to make this clear. It's not about have you sinned. It's not about church discipline. is not about, hey, did you mess up? Well, good, you're out of here. Church discipline is about are you willing to be reconciled? And if you're not, then it's time to enact church discipline. So take, for example, if I decided it was okay for me to have an affair. And I went around and I bragged about how we have freedom in Christ. Hey, in Christ we're all holy, we're all righteous, we're all pure, which is true. But I went around saying, because of this, I can just do whatever I want, including be unfaithful to my wife. You as a congregation would look at me and say, what? That guy's lost his mind. He has lost any credible theology. He can no longer be our pastor. We need to enact church discipline. Now, let's say I was involved in some sin, and it was brought to my attention, and I said, you know what? You're totally right. I have sinned. And I went through the process of reconciliation. It's the process of reconciliation that's important to avoid church discipline. But if someone is not willing to be reconciled, then the way we live out Psalm 101.8 is through church discipline. We say, no, you're no longer allowed to represent God with this church because you're so far off. So shalom is a, a Hebrew word that oftentimes we, we translate as peace, but it means so much more than peace. It means to flourish, to thrive. And one of the goals of Proverbs is that a culture, a society, could have shalom. How do we as a church have shalom? We begin with looking into our own heart, each individual examining their own hearts. And then it moves from that to our own household. Can we live in our household with integrity? Can we live in our household and still walk with God? And then from that it goes on to, who are we going to let influence us? Will we let the wicked come in and influence us, or will we pursue the righteous? The early church knew this, and even though it seemed like what they were living in was all falling apart, they had pockets of shalom everywhere. And what's amazing is as the pagans looked on all these pockets of shalom, all these pockets of churches that were thriving, it was a testimony to who God is. So one of our best witnesses to a world that is disbelieving is by us coming together to be a pocket of shalom. It starts in our own hearts. It moves to our household. And then it comes to the greater community. My prayer for our church is that we would thrive. Even when it feels like the world is falling apart, that we as a church would continue to pursue one another, that we would build one another up, that we would encourage each other, that we would call each other over to have dinner at each other's houses. When was the last time you invited someone from the church over for dinner? To build them up, to encourage them. And as we pursue one another, 
that we would have a pocket of shalom in a world that is turning ever more secular. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you would help us to understand it more. We pray that you would help us to turn from the wicked path and turn towards the righteous path, that we would ponder the righteous path, that we would be quick to repent when we are called out for being on the wicked path, that our hearts would constantly turn towards you. And we pray that we as a church could be a pocket of shalom, a place of peace and, and thriving and flourishing, that as the rest of Flagstaff looks on, they could say, that's an amazing place, and it would be a witness to you, to your grace and your forgiveness, to your love and your justice. We pray all this in your name.